record the 70s this is the place where we take a deep dive into the music politics and culture of the 70s i am amy your host for this one woman one mic show on today's episode we will try to answer a couple of questions maybe more than a couple of questions about country music one why were women writing recording and selling more music in the 70s in country music that is than ever before Two, what happened? Why didn't that trend continue into the 21st century? First, uh, thank you to all of my loyal listeners. Thanks for your nice messages that you sent me since the last episode. Remember, no ads. I just ask that if you like the show, you give it a good rating so others can find it and that you tell somebody. Hey, who remembers this commercial? I can put the wash on the line, feed the kids. Get dressed, pass out the kisses, and get to work by five and nine. Cause I'm a woman, Charles of the Ritz creates Ajolie, the new eight-hour perfume for the 24-hour woman. I can bring home the bacon, Ajolie. fry it up in a pan, Ajolie. and never, never, never let you forget remember that one, right? That's for a commercial for the perfume Anjali, which aired in the late 70s into the early 80s. The goal was to sell perfume to the working woman by celebrating the idea that women could work outside of the home, but not neglect their role in the home. It was inspired by the song I'm a Woman, which was written by the legendary songwriting team Jerry Lieber and Michael Stoller in 1962. Uh, Peggy Lee recorded a very jazzy version of I'm a Woman that year, and that is probably the most well-known of the many covers of this song. I can wash out 44 pairs of socks and have them hanging out on the line. I can start an iron two dozen shifts for you can count from one to nine. I can scoop up a great big dipper full of lard from the drippings can. Throw the skillet, go out and do my shopping. Be back before it melts in the pan. Cause I'm a woman. recap of the lyrics. I can wash out 44 pairs of socks and have them hanging out on the line. I can starch and iron two dozen shirts for you can count from one to nine. I can scoop up a great big dipper full of lard from the drippings can, throw it in the skillet, go out and do my shopping, be back before it melts in the pan because I'm a woman. W-O-M-A-N, I'll say it again. It's a nice song. Now, let me be clear that I am not disparaging the song in any way. I feel confident that I can say to you, my loyal listeners, that the women's rights movement has always centered on choice. So if a woman wants to wash out 44 pairs of socks and have them hanging on a line, then she should. But if she does not want that life, or she wants more, then there need to be more options of her choosing. That's it. The following year, Betty Friedan published The Feminine Mystique, which many historians and sociologists credit with being the beginning of the second wave of the women's rights movement, or even we could go ahead and say the feminist movement. Feminism is not a dirty word. Friedan's thesis was that that there were a lot of housewives who were just pretending to be fulfilled with that life. 
Whether you agree with her thesis or not, there is no question that it sparked a conversation. Today, we might say that Friedan was saying the quiet part out loud, but it was a good thing. The feminine mystique is part of the foundation for the women's rights movement that was born in the 60s, but took off in the 70s. Friedan, uh, Shirley Chisholm, Polly Murray, Muriel Fox, they all co-founded NOW, the National Organization for Women in 1966. Oh, by the way, in 1972, Shirley Chisholm became the first African-American to run for president. Stop and think about some things that a woman could not simply do when Lieber and Stoller wrote I'm a Woman and Friedan wrote The Feminine Mystique and now was created. Well, first, let me say that if you were an African-American woman, you may not have been able to sit, stand, eat, sleep, drink, live, vote in a place of your choosing in the United States of America. And that does matter. Here are some things. Women could not freely choose to use birth control. They could be denied access to birth control up until 1972. Women could be denied a legal abortion until 1973. Married women could be denied a credit card or a bank loan if they did not have a signature, i.e. permission, from their husband until 1975. Not only did women not have equal job opportunities and equal pay for the same job, they could be fired for being pregnant. Depending on which state she lived in, a woman may not have been allowed to serve on a jury. It was not until 1971 that a woman could serve on a jury in all states. And that is just a sample. Fast forward to April 2019, and a report issued by USC's Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, which did a study on gender equality in country music, And to nobody's surprise, in that report, it was revealed that only 16% of country artists are female and only 12% of country songwriters are women. None of the highest-selling female performers are over 40, even though almost all of the top-selling male country artists are over 40. Now, just a glance at both the Billboard country charts and the Billboard Hot 100 pop chart in the 70s shows us that this was not always the case. Music song, uh, music writer, I should say, Robert Hilburn. By the way, he wrote a great biography on Johnny Cash, Robert Hilburn. He wrote in 1978 that by that point, there were 50 number one songs in country music by women. And the decade wasn't even over yet. I mean, we hadn't even gotten to Barbara Mandrell and Sleep and Single in a Double Bed yet. Compare that to the 60s. There were 14 number one records by women in the 60s, and eight of those belonged to Tammy Wynette. Until Kitty Wells in the 50s, no woman in country music had a career that was independent from that of a man. And yes, that would include Maybelle Carter. Patsy Cline followed Kitty Wells in the 60s, but as you know, I'm sure, uh, she died in a plane crash in Tennessee in 1963, so we will never know all that she could have accomplished. Kitty Wells and Patsy Cline opened the door and in walked Tammy Wynette and Bobby Gentry and then came Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton and Emmy Lou Harris and Linda Ronstadt and Reba McIntyre and on and on. So why? 
Why were more women than ever scoring hit records and finding success in country and crossing over to pop in the 70s? I will tell you now, I don't think that there is a single answer. There's not a single event or a thing that happened. It is a combination of things. And even for the women who did find success, there were concessions that had to be made. So was it a sign of the times? Was it a a 70s thing? Yes, I think that that is definitely part of it. No question that the women's rights movement of the 70s was a factor. The progress that women made and the changing views of women's roles in society could be felt in country music. Still, you know, that didn't equate to women busting through the glass ceiling of rock and roll in numbers much larger than Hart and the Pretenders. In fact, the marketing of women as sex symbols, whether they wanted it or not, and most did not, is completely contrary to what the feminist movement stood for. But that is exactly what country music did. It was a kind of a cruel trade-off. However, being a pretty woman or a pretty girl, as was the case for 13-year-old Tanya Tucker, was not enough, not by itself, to get you a record deal or get you on the radio. At the heart of country music is the story. It is a storyteller's genre. Country music's history is multicultural and multiracial, and at the core of that is the traditional ballad or folk song which was introduced to the South by British immigrants. Stories were told in song. Mix in the rhythmic influences and instruments like the banjo, which came from Africa, and you have hillbilly music, which is an ancestor of country. The ability to tell a compelling story is celebrated in country music, and some of the biggest country hits of the 70s, especially by women, are compelling stories. There is also this rebellious spirit of the traditional Southern United States, which taken to the extreme gave us the Confederacy and Jim Crow, which followed that. If that rebellion is channeled into creating space for new storytellers rather than slavery and segregation, and maybe you even say there's an obligation to not conform to traditional femininity, you now have an opportunity for a woman to tell her story, or at least a white woman. There's no question that country music, like rock, has a race problem. I'm not saying had, it still has a race problem. That's another episode for another time, though. It requires more time um, here, because I think it merits a longer discussion. Another piece of this puzzle is the changing sound of country music in the 70s, which blurred the lines between country and pop. It was starting before that, but we really see it on the uh, billboard charts in the 70s. And I'll get to that shortly, but let's dig into some of the music. So rumbles of these changes in country music could be heard in the late 60s. Harper Valley PTA is a really good example. It was written by Tom T. Hall, and it's in the same vein as Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe, which had been released in 1967. Uh, That story tells, uh, that song tells us the story of Billy Joe McAllister. Remember, Billy Joe McAllister, he dropped something mysterious into the water before he jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. Harper Valley PTA is a 
bit more sassy and is a narrative about small town hypocrisy told from the perspective of Mrs. Johnson's daughter, a student at Harper Valley Junior High. Mrs. Johnson, whose husband died, upset the good folks of Harper Valley with her miniskirts and her, quote, drinking and running round with men and going wild. Jeannie C. Riley was 22 when she recorded the song, and she sang it with sass and just enough edge that it appealed to the rebels who wished that they could stand up to someone the way that Mrs. Johnson stood up to the Harper Valley PTA. In fact, Riley became Mrs. Johnson. She wore miniskirts and strutted and pouted on stage in this way that was playful, but it was kind of angry too. The song was a hit because it was a modern take on the traditional folk song that had this, I'm not going to take your bullshit vibe to it. It is also kind of a time capsule of the late 60s, early 70s, with its reference to miniskirts, the soap opera Peyton Place, and Sock It To Me, which was made famous on the variety TV show Laughing. Margie Singleton recorded it first. A whole lot of country singers have recorded it since, but none of the covers was the smash hit that Riley's cover was. Johnson, you're wearing your dresses way too high. It's reported you've been drinking and or running round with men and going wild. And we don't believe you ought to be a bringing up your little girl this way. And it was signed by the secretary Harper Valley PTA. Harper Valley PTA debuted at number 81 on the Billboard Hot 100 in September 1968, and one week later it jumped up 74 spots to number 7. The next week it was number 4, the week after that number 2, the week after that, the week of September 1st, up 21st, it was number 1. Jeannie was keeping company, Jeannie C. Riley that is, in the top 10 with The Beatles, Steppenwolf, Aretha Franklin, That song also spent three weeks at the number one slot on the Billboard country chart. And by the way, Harper Valley PTA also inspired a movie starring Barbara Eden. You might remember her from I Dream of Jeannie. And then in in 1980, it became a TV show. Here's the trade-off for Riley, though. 
Shelby Singleton, who owned the record label Plantation and was the record's producer, made her into a character. A rebel, but also kind of what we'd call a sex pot back then. She became a trope, the oversexed hillbilly girl. It is this cruel irony, irony that she was singing a song about a strong woman, but she was not permitted her own authenticity. When she performed at the Grand Ole Opry the very first time, and the crowd roared its approval when she sang, but Ralph Emery, the MC, joked along with the cameraman in this very creepy way about the cameraman being so focused on Jeannie's legs. When she tried to wear a floor-length gown to the 1968 Country Music Association Awards, Singleton called the tailor and had Riley's dress shortened to mid-thigh. Singleton told Riley's husband, who tried to step in and kind of put an end to this expectation that Riley be the flirt in real life that she played on stage when they were making these promotional appearances, and he was told he could not travel with them anymore on these promotional tours. Eventually, Riley broke her contract with Singleton and went to MGM to try to assert some control over her own career and her life. And by the end of the decade, she was a gospel singer who performed in these full-length gowns and presumably was now the person who had taken some control of her image. It was this battle over image versus authenticity that seemed to push Bobby Gentry out of music altogether. It is hard to overstate the popularity of Ode to Billy Joe, but Gentry was no one-hit wonder. And even though she was from Mississippi, she was not the hillbilly that the industry tried to make her into. She had studied music in California starting at the age of 13. Uh, According to Tara Murtha, who wrote an excellent book on Gentry in Ode to Billy Joe for the 33 and a Third book series, Gentry was a DJ for Armed Armed Forces Radio, and she probably painted the portraits for the uh, album covers for Fancy and Patchwork. And for 10 years, she starred in shows in Las Vegas that were, and I quote now, critically acclaimed for over-the-top set design, outrageous costumes she often designed herself, and stellar choreography, including a gender-bending tribute to Elvis Presley performed in a skin-tight, glittering pantsuit. That, my friends, would never have happened in the 60s. You might be more familiar with the song Fancy because of Reba McIntyre's cover of it in 1991. Reba plays it at many of her live shows, and she even performed it on the CMA Awards on television in 2019. Her signature move is to come out and start the song in a raggedy old coat and then throw the coat off to show her sparkling red gown underneath, as if to say, fancy a poor teenage girl who was pushed into prostitution because her mom did not know what else to do to survive has made it. Men thought they were using her, but she was using them. Here is Bobby Gentry singing the song she wrote and recorded in 1969. was the summer I turned 18. We lived in a one-room run-down shack on the outskirts of New Orleans. We didn't have money for food or rent, to say the least we were hard-pressed. 
Then mama spent every last penny we had to buy me a dancing dress. Mama washed and combed and curled my hair and she painted my eyes and lips. And then I stepped into a satin dancing dress that was split on the side, cleaned up to my hips. Well, it was red velvet trim and it fit me good. And staring back from the looking glass was a woman where a half grown kid had stood. Here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down. My cheek, and I saw the tears well up in her troubled eyes when she started to speak. She looked at a pitiful shack, and then she looked at me and took a ragged breath. Your paws run off, and I'm real sick, and the baby's gonna starve to death. She handed me a heart shaped locket that said to thine own self be true, and I shivered as I watched a roach crawl across the toe of my high heel shoe. It sounded like somebody else that was talking, asking, Mama, what do I do? Just be nice to the gentleman, Fancy, and they'll be nice to you. Here's your one chance, Fancy, don't let me down. Fancy uh, was a modest country and pop crossover hit in 1970. It was released in 69 and made it to the charts in 70 for Bobby Gentry. On the surface, you might be kind of horrified, uh, but beneath that is a story of survival, using what you have to lift yourself up. Gentry said, Fancy is my strongest statement for women's lib, if you really listen to it. I agree wholeheartedly with that movement and all the serious issues that they stand for, equality, equal pay, daycare centers, and abortion rights. Now, that's pretty strong stuff uh, for a woman in 1970. She is unquestionably a very talented songwriter and one of the best storytellers in country music ever. But by the end of the 70s, she just walked away. She was on the Christmas episode of Johnny Carson's show in 1978, and that was it. No more performing, uh, no more interviews, no retrospectives, nothing. She just walked away. I discussed the blurring of lines between pop and country music way back in episode two of this very podcast, Country-ish Music of the 70s. Check it out if you want more detail on that topic. For now, I will simply remind you that the so-called countrypolitan sound, the country pop sound with the big backing orchestral arrangements, was intentional. It was designed to get more country music on the radio and thereby sell more records. And it worked. And I think it is also part of the answer as to why women were more able to get radio airplay and sell records in country music in the 70s. Crossing over to pop created more room, more exposure. It's the very thing that made Glenn Campbell, already a wonderful musician, a star with his own TV show in the 70s. Olivia Newton-John benefited from this too. She upset a lot of people in the country music industry for winning a Grammy in 1974 for... Um, her vocals for Let Me Be There, but she really got a lot of flack. Or maybe the Country Music Association, they got the flack when she won Female Vocalist of the Year in 1974. This song, If You Love Me, Let Me Know, 
was nominated for Single of the Year at the Number two, country hit number five on the pop chart, and just not country enough for the purists who thought the same thing about John Denver. You might recall from a prior episode that this led to George Jones and Tammy Wynette leaving the Country Music Association in protest. Now, Olivia rightly pointed out, though, that the crossover between country and pop had already started before she came along. And then she specifically mentioned Lynn Anderson, who as a teenager was on the Lawrence Welk show. Now, everybody who was in the presence of their grandparents when Lawrence Welk was on definitely remembers that show because there was no way we were going to be allowed to change that channel. All right. So Joe South wrote and recorded uh, Rose Garden in 1967. Lynn Anderson wanted to record it too, But her producer, who also happened to be her husband, had to be convinced that it was an appropriate song for a woman to sing. Oh, did I mention that until we get into the late 70s, I would say women in country were often very limited in the material that they could perform. They may not even have been allowed to make that decision for themselves. Hey, I mean, that's what happened with Cher. When Sonny told her that she could not record the night the lights went out in Georgia and Vicki Lawrence said, thank you very much. I will take it from here. Well, Anderson did end up recording Rose Garden and she won a Grammy for this performance in 1971. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden along with the sunshine. There's gotta be a little rain sometime When you take you gotta give So live and let live or let go I beg your pardon I never promised you a rose garden I could promise you things like big diamond rings But you don't find roses growing on stalks of clover So you better think it over Well, if sweet talking you could make it come true I would give you the world right now on a silver platter 
hard to not sing along to that song. So I just went ahead and muted myself for a while there. Uh, the Country Politan Polish comes through loud and clear on Rose Garden. That was a number three Billboard Hot 100 in 1971. Number one on the Billboard Country Charts for five weeks. The album was number one on the Country Album Chart for 14 weeks in a row. And the next woman to do better than that was Shania Twain, with The Woman in Me, and that was 25 years later. I want to read to you the beginning of an article from 1973 that was published in a newspaper in Tyler, Texas. The title of the article is Women Country Singers Far Removed from Their Counterparts. That got my attention because I wanted the 1973 perspective on how women may have advanced their craft. Here is what the article says. The women who sing country music today are far removed from the stereotyped counterpart of yesteryear, who wore calico dresses and braided their hair. Nowadays, they are so good-looking that they could make a living posing for magazine covers or in glamorized advertisements. Oh, the author goes on to say how attractive Connie Smith and Lynn Anderson are on their album covers. The question of image and appreciation for the music, without also referring to a woman's looks, will not be solved in the 70s. The most accepted image was that of faithful wife, like Tammy Wynette putting up with George Jones and his drunken escapades. Or a woman could be a mother, a literal mother, like Maybelle Carter. Maybelle, who was, of course, Johnny Cash's mother-in-law, was called Mother Maybell. She could not simply be referred to as one of the most influential guitarists in country music history. She was the matriarch of the singing Carter family first for a lot of people. Tammy Wynette, Dolly Parton, and Loretta Lynn did not have to deal with the same questions about authenticity in their music, or at least Dolly did not in the early 70s. All three were born in the South, all three were born poor, and all three reached their superstar status because they could sing and write songs that people could relate to, and they did it really, really well. Again, you know, we have first-rate storytellers, probably none better than Dolly. They were also not ashamed of their roots. In fact, they celebrated their roots. They were proud, and in turn, they gave their fans who may have had similar backgrounds, reason to be proud too. When Loretta Lynn sang Coal Miner's Daughter, it was with pride that she told the story of her childhood in Butcher Holler. When Dolly Parton sang about her coat of many colors, which tells us the story of her mother sewing her a coat out of rags because that is all she could afford to do, there is zero shame in it. When Wynette sang Stand By Your Man, which could have easily turned into a joke after she married George Jones. It didn't because she sang it like a love song. Wynette wrote in her memoir, I believe you have to live the songs. So Stand By Your Man, 
D-I-V-O-R-C-E. He loves me all the way. Uh, Given how sad some of her songs were and how sad her own life was in many ways, I believe she meant that. I wish she didn't mean it, but I believe that she did. She left an enduring legacy of music, but this one was her favorite, Till I Can Make It On My Own. I'll need time to get you off my mind, and I may sometimes bother you, try to be in touch with you, even as too much of you from time to time. Now. to number one on the country charts in 1976. She co-wrote that with her legendary producer and writer, uh, Billy Sherrill, and her last husband, George Ritchie. It was her 15th number one hit. Unfortunately, she could never live that song. Her daughter claims what many people suspected, that Ritchie abused Tammy, and when she made these really wild hard to believe claims that she had been kidnapped and beaten in 1977. A lot of people suspected it was to cover up the fact that Richie beat her up. And we did see uh, photographs of her beaten face. And uh, she had these look like burn marks on her throat, on her neck. Um, So she was obviously beaten, but many people suspected that he did it. By this time, she was hooked on pills to the point that drugs would just be FedExed to her. She was a little bit like Elvis in that if she took too many pills, it was a real chore to get her through a show. And then her band wondered which version of Tammy they were going to get that night. Tammy took a lot of uh, crap about stand by your man, which on the surface seems like it is saying that you stand by a man even when they treat you bad. And it does say that, but maybe the message that men are really just weak, the last line of the song is, after all, he's just a man, was maybe too subtle for most people. Loretta Lynn broke right through the subtlety with songs like Fist City in 1968. Here are some of the lyrics. If you don't want to go to Fist City, you better detour around my town, because I'll grab you by the hair or the head, and I'll lift you off the ground. I'm not a saying my baby's a saint, because he ain't, and that he won't cat around with a kitty. I'm here to tell you, gal, 
to lay off my man if you don't want to go to Fist City. So again, men are weak, but uh, back off or I will knock you out. And then there was don't come a drinking with loving on your, oh, don't come home a drinking, pardon me, with loving on your mind in 1967. Songs like this are laying the path for women in the 70s to express themselves in ways that went beyond the traditional loyal housewife. And Loretta did not stop there. Uh, Radio stations would not even play The Pill in 1975 because a song about birth control was just too controversial. The thing that gave Loretta the space to write and sing songs that were more confrontational was that she had built up enough goodwill by the 70s because she is that talented, once-in-a-generation talented. But she also was the embodiment of a notion about southern rural femininity, which is not just about dresses and subordination to men. It is toughness and strength. That's that rebellion thing that I was talking about at the top of the show. She told us her story in 1970 with this, her signature song, Coal Miner's Daughter. Loretta's biography of the same name was released in 1976, and that became the movie Coal Miner's Daughter in 1980. Uh, Loretta hand-selected Sissy Spacek to play her in the movie, and Spacek, who is fabulous in the movie, won an Academy Award, and then the movie won the Academy Award for Best Picture. See it if you have not, and go watch it again if it's been a while. Loretta proved to be a very good businesswoman, too, and what she was able to do as the 70s progressed that other women in the industry at the beginning of the decade could not was take some control of her career. Uh, Loretta and her contemporary, Dolly Parton, both showed this strength and were living examples of this growing authority and independence for women in the industry. And if you extrapolate that out, it's also showing the growing authority and independence for women in general. In many ways, they became brands like Reba McIntyre did in the 80s and beyond that. Dolly Parton, like Loretta Lynn, was born poor in the rural South. Uh, Dolly is from Tennessee and about 14 years younger than Loretta. Starting in 1967, Dolly's career was linked with that of Porter Wagner. She had been a performer on the Porter Wagner TV show. She was part of his touring company, and she made like 12 albums with him when she asked that he let her go in 1974. The way she has told it many times is that she said she would give him five years, and after seven, 
she wanted to go. He would not let her go, wouldn't let her out of a contract. He thought that he knew what was best for her, or maybe he knew how much he depended on her at this point. Let me get this. Let me rephrase this. All right. Porter Wagner definitely had his own career and he definitely gave Dolly Parton her start in the industry. But Dolly and Porter together were a very formidable recording team. And I think he definitely relied on her to sell records. Now, Dolly has told many times how she wrote, I will always love you for him and played it for him. And he cried and he finally agreed to let her out of her contract if she would let him produce the record, which happened. If only that was the end of it. It was not. Uh, Wagner sued Dolly for $3 million in 1979, saying that she broke their contract and he wanted 15% of her net income between June 1974 and June 1979, and he wanted 15% of her record royalties. He said some pretty mean things about her too. He said she was selfish and that she stabbed him in the back and he could never trust her. He believed that she owed him because he gave her her start. Now, Dolly, who is as tough as nails uh, as a businesswoman, they call call her the iron butterfly, but also is the epitome of grace. Uh, She settled out of court with him and she settled with him for $1 million. And she said later, it took me a while to pay it off, but he got the first million dollars that I ever made. You know, there is always so much attention put on Dolly's appearance, especially in her younger years. Um, that, and she never really downplayed that. She did say that, that she didn't like it when it got mean, but that really would have only taken her so far. Her voice and especially her songwriting, that's the essence of her career. In 1973, as she is trying to figure out how to get untangled from Porter Wagner, she wrote and released a song that is in many ways the opposite of Loretta Lynn's Fist City or You Ain't Woman Enough to Take My Man. Loretta's song threatened physical violence if you tried to take her man. Jolene is a plea. I know you can take my man, but please don't do it. of auburn hair with ivory skin and eyes of emerald green Your smile is like a breath of spring Your voice is soft like summer rain and I cannot compete with you Jolene He talks about you in his sleep and there's nothing I can do to keep from crying when he calls your name Jolene Understand how you could easily take my man, but you don't know what he means to me, Jolene. Jolene, 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 Jolene. 
Queen. Number one on the country charts in 1973. That is Dolly's most covered song. If you want to know more about that song, I'm going to suggest that you check out the podcast, Dolly Parton's America from WNYC uh, in 2019 and go listen to episode number six. Dolly moved more toward pop as the 70s progressed, which was, again, upsetting to many people in country music. And Porter Wagner weighed in on it and said he did not approve. Uh, she hired Gary Klein as her producer, and he worked with Barbara Streisand. So that seems like Dolly was making a very intentional effort to change her image. To those people who complained, uh, she said, I'm not leaving country music. I am taking it with me. Even though her music, like 9 to 5, wasn't really country, she always has been. And so she kind of has this country girl in the city vibe, like we are viewing it all through a country girl's eyes. Dolly got her first uh, solo TV show in 1976, but, you know, everybody had a variety show in the 70s. So that's not a huge surprise, but it is a sign of things to come for her. Uh, It won't be long before she's starring in movies, too. Like the industry itself, the show was a mix of country and pop. There may not have been a better episode, though, than the one that featured Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt. Emmylou was a folk singer who was introduced to Dolly's music by her brother in the early 70s. She worked really closely with Graham Parsons, whose Flying Burrito Brothers band really set the stage for the country rock style that was so popular in the 70s. You know, think early Eagles. Linda Ronstadt and Emmy Lou met at this honky-tonk in Houston called the Liberty Bar in 1973. And the way Linda describes it, it was this loud, rowdy place which would get really quiet when Emmy Lou sang because she is just that good. Linda said at that point it was either be jealous of Emmy Lou or become her friend. And she made the wise decision to become her friend. And they also collaborated Uh, in music as well. Now, Ronstadt's role in 70s country is an interesting one. We have the benefit of hindsight now, and we now know what her whole career arc looks like. We know now that Linda Ronstadt may have had the purest voice of anyone who took the stage in the 70s. We know now that she can sing and did sing any genre, and that includes singing Spanish folk songs. We know now just how huge Glenn Fry and Don Henley, who were in her band, would become when they formed the Eagles. We know that she, maybe even more than Graham Parsons, made it cool for younger people to like country music. Yes, she was smoking hot, but it was her voice and her brand of country rock that helped expose even more people to country. It may be unfair to say she benefited from the blurring boundaries of what country music is, because I think she actually helped do the blurring. She showed that country music could be so much more than we all thought it could be. Her breakthrough album was Heart Like a Wheel, the Grammy Award winner that was released at the end of 1974. I happen to have a copy of that record right here. And as I scan it, I see it opens with You're No Good, a classic all by itself. 
I see Sissy Houston, Whitney's mom, sings background vocals on Dark End of the Street. I see Maria Moldauer sings background on Heart Like a Wheel. She sang Midnight at the Oasis. Um, she covers a Hank Williams song, I Can't Help It If I Am Still in Love With You, and Emmy Lou sang on that. I see Don Henley, Glenn Fry, and Timothy B. Schmidt, basically the Eagles, play on You Can Close Your Eyes. Man, it is not necessarily a purist's country album, but it is a purist's Linda Ronstadt album. Here is her cover of the Everly Brothers hit, When Will I Be Loved? country single number two on the pop charts in 1975 and she won best country vocal performance uh for the track i can't help it if i'm still in love with you so that episode of dolly's show with emmy lou and linda they sang together and they blew away the audience with this version of the gospel song the sweetest gift which emmy lou and linda recorded for linda's 1975 album Prisoner in Disguise. Oh my goodness. I mean, it, it doesn't get much better than that. Uh, no, Dolly and Emmy Lou and Linda were as, as impressed as anyone with how they sounded and tried to make a record not long after that. It didn't sound right, and I think there were some contractual issues. Uh, fortunately, they tried again in 1986 and in 1987 released the album Trio, and it is a gorgeous album, but how could it not be? Uh, as we get into the late 70s, we are on the verge of the era of Reba McIntyre, who signed her first contract in 1975, and the Judds. Uh, Barbara Mandrell had the biggest hit of her career with Sleeping Single in a Double Bed in 1978, which is a pop song with a steel guitar. Not that there is anything wrong with that. Things look good for women in country music, uh, which means that things look good, you know, 
everywhere in the music industry, right? I mean, you think about the diversity of the music that I have featured in this episode, and it was all under the umbrella of country music, but it was also an expansion into pop and rock. And it was all from women who had something to say and chose to say it in song. So what happened? How did we get to where we are now, which is radio stations being applauded for courage if they play songs with female voices back to back? And that's literally what has happened in country music. Reba McIntyre said that none of that surprises her because Nashville is still a good old boys network. I'm going to expand on that and say the music industry is still a good old boys network, white boys anyway. But is that all? I mean, these things were true in the 70s too. The answer may lie within how record labels promote records and who they choose to promote. There may not have been a more beautiful voice in Nashville than Katie Lang's in the late 90s, but she's gay and quirky and didn't fit the image. Much has been made of the bro image in country, but that is because that's what country music or mainstream country music evolved into. It was a lot easier to market Garth Brooks or Blake Shelton than Katie Lang. What is lost in this process is damn good music. The music industry is in flux right now. Radio does not have anywhere close to the power it once had. There is really nothing preventing an artist from dropping an album without a record label. As consumers, we have more choice than ever. If radio is still part of your music mix, I encourage you to do some exploring and see what else is out there. Like these women, there are a lot of artists who have something to say and are just waiting for you to find them. That is all for this episode of For the Record the 70s. Please give a nice rating if you like what you hear and tell a friend. Hey, I really like the fan mail too. That's nice. All of my source material is on ftr70.com and you can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. 